a lot of times bees can get a bad rap because of yellow jackets, right? Yellow jackets are yellow and black. And so are honeybees yellow and black, bumblebees are yellow and black. And so if you're just kind of going based on similar characteristics, you could easily confuse the two or think they're the same thing. And yellow jackets, sure, they can be aggressive, absolutely. But even they play an important role in our ecosystem. And I do think wasps get a bad rap due to a reputation for being aggressive. But even wasps, there are quite a few species of wasps that are solitary nesting. And, you know, similar to the bees, they're not actively trying to like hunt you down and sting you. Uh, but in reality, wasps are really adept hunters that we wouldn't want to live without. Hello, and welcome to Green Dragon, a monthly show where we talk about green initiatives in the state and county and ongoing sustainability efforts at Howard Community College. Also ideas and ways for you to be more sustainable at home. I'm Bob Marietta, HCC's Environmental Health and Safety Supervisor. And I thank you for being with me today. We've all heard about bees being in danger of colony collapse. Now, what does that mean and why should we care? Some of us don't like bugs and some are deathly afraid of being stung. My guest today will shed some light on this subject and explain what the buzz about bees is all about. Julie Costantino, Sustainability Project Manager for the Howard County Government, manages the county's residential stormwater program and coordinates Howard County's Bee City USA efforts. She has a degree in natural resource management from the University of Maryland, and she is a certified level two Chesapeake Bay landscape professional. So welcome, Julie. So let's get hey, started. Bob, how are what you? is a bee city? Great question. I get that all the time. So a bee city is any city, town, or county in our case um, who has made a formal commitment to recognize, support, and encourage pollinator conservation in their community. And Bee City itself is an initiative of the Xerxes Society. And the Xerxes Society is an invertebrate conservation organization. And their main focus is, as I mentioned, invertebrate conservation, but they focus on a lot of different topics, one of them being pollinator conservation. And they started an initiative that kind of allowed communities to really come together and focus on effort in their community. So that's kind of an overview of Bee City itself and, you know, where it kind of comes from. I just have to ask, where did the name Xerxes come from? Okay, great. Um, another great question. So it <laughs> is from the Xerxes blue butterfly, which is the first butterfly to go extinct from man-made, you know, consequences. So recently in our time, so they named the organization after that butterfly, the Xerxes Blue. So how did Howard County become a bee city? So this started kind of when I began working with a county. I, I've always been passionate about pollinators and found them extremely interesting. And so did always did a lot of you know research on my own just to learn more about them. And when I began working in the county, I wanted to create a countywide pollinator program. So I did a lot of research into what was already being done in the county by both other government agencies like our Department of Recreation and Parks and as well as other nonprofits. So I wanted to create something that brought together all of the great work being done by these groups because I believe that we can achieve more when we work together toward a common goal. 
So I was discussing this idea with a colleague, you know, and I had presented it to the county's environmental sustainability board. And she said to me, gosh, it would be so cool if Howard County could be like a bee and butterfly county. I wonder if there's something like that. And I was like, oh, that is a really great idea. You know, I, I also wonder if there's anything like that. So I immediately began researching what kind of efforts were already out there that we can maybe become a, be a part of as opposed to kind of recreating the wheel. And I came across the Xerxes Society and their Bee City Initiative. And it, it really was a perfect fit because it allowed that idea for everybody that's already doing work together to kind of come together and work towards these overarching goals that they lay out for you. It's a nice framework and you're part of something bigger as well. So I proposed this idea to the director of my office, the Office of Community Sustainability, and he loved it. He brought the idea to our county executive, Calvin Ball. And before I knew it, we were drafting an executive order to become a bee city. And so through an executive order, that was signed by County Executive Calvin Ball in September of 2019, we became a bee city. And if you're interested in reading the full executive order, we have that up on the Live Green Howard website under our pollinator page. So it's linked there and you can read all the fun details in that. Since you brought it up, what else can we find on the Live Green website? Ooh, pollinator related or just in general or both? Oh, in general. Yeah, so the Live Green Howard website is a really great resource for all things sustainability in Howard County. And in particular, what it does is it kind of takes all of those sustainability efforts from different agencies within county government, as well as some of the work being done by local nonprofits and lays it out quite nicely through like land, water, energy. And I believe there might be another tab as well that people can explore, but it, it kind of just puts everything into one place as far as what is being done through sustainability in the county, both county efforts. And then, you know, we even have an events page, but our under land, you'll find a pollinator page. And there is where we kind of put all of our B city information, the executive order that I mentioned. And there's also going to be links to some of the other work that we've done through B city. So one of the most popular things that we did is put together these native plant pollinator garden templates. And there are six or seven of them, like one for each common site condition. So like if you have a wet area in your yard or if you have a sunny and dry spot or maybe it's part sun, there are garden templates that people can use that will tell you, you know, which plants to use. It gives you some alternates that you can look for if you can't find which ones are listed initially. And then it also gives you a nice way to arrange them in a garden. So, you know, sometimes people like they really want to do something, but don't always have a place to start. So these are a nice way for people to have a little place to get started. Great. So Julie, what ongoing efforts does being a bee city require the county to do? Yeah, that is a good question because being a bee city does have requirements. You know, it's part of a, a larger initiative, as I mentioned. So there are things that they lay out that they want their bee city to do each year. And each year we recertify as a bee city and we submit all of this information as to what we've been working on. And there are three main kind of categories that we work on. One of them is creating and enhancing pollinator habitat. So under that kind of goal, we have created a habitat registry where 
people who have either in the past or you know just recently installed up you know maybe a pollinator garden it could be as small as you know containers on a townhouse balcony up to you know a acre or you know pollinator meadow you can register your habitat and we are you know collecting all of that information and we tally it each year so how much pollinator habitat have we created and then anybody that registers their habitat is able and eligible to to get a pollinator sign so bob i believe you have one of those at the college at least one at the college and so they're a nice way to kind of showcase what you're doing so that's one of the efforts that we are doing under the creating and enhancing pollinator habitat we also on that live green howard website we have a list of local like native plant nurseries for people who don't know where to go for native plants things like that so that those are some requirements of for b city as far as creating and enhancing habitat the other main goal is education and outreach so telling people why it's so important to conserve pollinators and so one of the biggest things that we do each year one of the the main requirement is to host at least one pollinator education or outreach event per year we do quite a few but our biggest one that we do each year is pollinator week which occurs in june each year and so every year we work with the the different organizations in our city and host several events throughout pollinator week and then the final goal of the city is to reduce pesticide use so there's lots of research out there showing the negative impacts that pesticides have on pollinators and not just pollinators, but insects in general. And so we are working to educate the community about how they can reduce their pesticide use. And then in addition, when we became a, a bee city through that executive order, we also updated the county government pesticide policy and you know kind of strengthened what we were doing as a county as part of our becoming a beef city so those are the three main things that we work on under that pesticide goal as a beef city we recently worked with another beef city in decatur georgia who has a really great mosquito spraying anti-mosquito spraying pesticide initiative and we created flyers that educate people about the negative impacts of mosquito spraying i'm sure anybody listening to this has heard of mosquito spraying have had you know a company maybe come to their house and ask to spray in their yard or you know sometimes full hoas have that being done as part of their you know regular ongoing maintenance in the summer and so that's something that we recently launched this year as a campaign for our efforts. Thanks. I know folks here at the college are really proud of our B City sign. Everybody really enjoys watching the flower plants and on our pollinator trail. So on a different note, are honeybees really in danger of dying out? Yeah, so this is a great question and it brings up a topic that I really like to discuss with people when I talk about pollinators and in, in bee city in particular, because for many people, pollinator conservation kind of goes, they, the first bee that they think of is a honeybee and they think of beekeeping. But the story is quite a bit bigger than that. You know, as we work to conserve pollinators, we really need to ensure that our efforts are best directed where they're needed most. and not just where it might be easiest to accomplish. And while honeybees are super important for our 
current agricultural system. You know, their role in our natural areas and even kind of in our urban and suburban settings is quite a bit more complicated. Pollinator populations are in decline in many parts of the world. So it's not just honeybees. And, you know, these declines put agricultural productivity and the health of our natural ecosystems at risk. So, you know, there's been a lot of research over the last decade. There has been a dramatic rise in annual hive losses for the domestic honeybee in the U.S. I think it's somewhere around like 30%. Um, beekeepers are losing like 30% of their bees each year. But you know, our native pollinators might be faring even worse than that. There are numerous wild unmanaged pollinators that are native to North America that are experiencing declines and a significant proportion of our native bee species are at risk of extinction. For example, it's around 28% of the North American bumblebees have undergone significant declines, including some species that were formerly common and widespread. So I think the rusty patch bumblebee is probably the most well-known, which has disappeared from 87% of its historic range. And it was the first bumblebee to li be listed as an endangered species. And that was pretty recently. Butterflies also have undergone significant declines and 19% of them are at risk of extinction, including species that have special habitat needs. For example, in this area, the Baltimore checker spot butterfly is reliant upon the white turtle head for as its host plant. And I'm not sure when the last time we really saw a Baltimore checker spot in this area. The monarch butterfly, you know, everybody knows and has heard of the monarch butterfly and that has experienced declines both west of the Rockies and east. But you know, the thing that is in common with all of these pollinators that I'm mentioning is they're all experiencing habitat loss, habitat degradation, fragmentation, diseases, pesticide use, climate change, all of these things are threats to pollinators and are impacting the ecosystems that they support. And it's, you know, it's not just agriculture, it's those natural systems as well. So that is a, a very long way of answering your question. So sure, honeybees are in danger, but, you know, I think it is a lot bigger than just honeybees. And, and when we're thinking about pollinator conservation, we need to keep in mind all of the different pollinators that are threatened and, and need our help. You mentioned several different kinds of bees, so I guess there's a lot of different kinds of bees. Do they all make honey? And people want to know, do they all sting you? <laughs> yes, yeah, so the honeybees are the only bees that make honey that we collect and sell in stores or other places. But actually the bumblebee does produce a small amount of honey each year as part of their natural life cycle, but it's not on the scale that honeybees do. So as far as like honey production, you know, honeybees are are the ones that are, are going to do it. And then, so I think worldwide, it's something around like 20,000 different species globally. And then in North America, we have, or in the United States, we have like 3,600. And then in Maryland, it's somewhere around maybe between like 360 and 400 different species. So, you know, in addition to the well-known honeybee, which was brought to the United States from Europe for agricultural purposes, we also have those thousands of other species of bees that exist here as well. So all bees help with pollination, you know, and another question that I get sometimes is why is it called bee city and not pollinator city or not butterfly city or, you know, one of the other pollinators? And the reason for that is because bees are the best pollinators. 
they are the, the ones that are actively collecting and seeking out pollen because that's what they use to feed their young. That's the protein source that they use to feed their young. Whereas other pollinators, when they're visiting flowers, they're more incidental in their pollination because they're visiting for nectar and not pollen. So, you know, they will brush up against the pollen, they'll collect some on their bodies and kind of incidentally move it from flower to flower. But since bees are actively collecting and transporting pollen and moving it from flower to flower, they are the most impactful pollinators. And not to mention that the plant pollinator relationship that has evolved over time between bees and flowers has, you know, dictated their physical features. You know, they're designed to collect pollen, so they're going to do it more efficiently, more effectively. And so, you know, they are the powerhouse pollinators of the pollinator world. But there are many other pollinators that do pollinate, you know, mentioned a couple of them already, butterflies, moths, who are the butterflies of the night. You know, beetles are actually really effective pollinators. Ants, even some wasps will pollinate. And there's some other like animals like birds and, and bats can be pollinators as well in some parts of the world, even like lizards and some rodents can be pollinators. But when we're talking about the heavy hitters, it's the bees. Do you have a favorite bee? Bob, I think that's a kind of an unfair question, but because I have so many, you know, you know, I mentioned that number 3,600 bees in America. And, you know, the more I, you know, open my eyes and kind of observe and look at what's out there, the more favorite bees I add to my list. And a lot of these bees are present only in certain times of the year, like certain seasons, like there are bees that come out only in early spring. For example, the spring beauty minor bee, which relies on the spring beauty flower, which is found in a lot of wooded areas, they're only out for a very short period of time. And that's not one of my favorite spring bees because I just love that relationship that they have with that flower. The spring beauty flower is one of the first signs of spring. So I, I really love that bee. Then you have your green metallic sweat bees. And these are so colorful and shiny. They're just really pretty to look at. When you see one, you know that's what it is. And there are some other metallic bees, which are really cool. And then last year, when I was in a Western Regional Park walking around looking at, you know, what kind of bees are out on the flowers in, you know, late summer, I spotted a golden northern bumblebee which was the first time I've ever seen that kind of bee. And it was so beautiful. I got a picture of it and that became my new favorite bumblebee. And then also this year I spotted a longhorn bee, which there are many types of longhorn bees, but they have really long antenna relative to their body size. And they're just really cute in my opinion. So I do have quite a few favorite bees, but those are kind of some of my favorites. I'm so glad I asked. So the $100 question, should we be afraid of getting stung? Yeah, you know, I also get that a lot. You know, I think what I tell people is your best defense from getting stung is being educated. And, you know, people should always exercise caution around unfamiliar animals, instincts. But I don't believe that people need to be overly concerned about getting stung by bees in particular are native bees, which, you know, I haven't really mentioned this very much, but I think this is a good time to bring it up. When we think about honeybees, we know that they nest in colonies, right? So there's thousands of individuals and they have a system where, you know, there's different types of bees that have a role. They do different things. Some of them are worker bees. Some of them go out and forage, you know, then there's some that like 
protect the hive and nest, and their job is to protect the nest. But you know, the majority of our native bees are actually solitary nesting, meaning that a single female bee provisions her nest, meaning that she is the one that goes out and collects the food. She, you know, makes the nest and she protects the nest. And she's honestly just way too busy to be just sitting there and, and looking to sting people. That's one thing. The other thing to note is that only female bees can sting of any species. Male bees cannot sting. They have a modified ovipositor in place of a stinger and then they can't sting. So I know some people don't always love the carpenter bees, the ones that kind of fly around. They are also solitary nesting. So those holes that they're drilling in their wood are holes that they're drilling for a nest. So they go up there and they lay an egg on a pollen ball and then partition, you know, make a little wall and then, you know, do the same thing until they fill up that hole. The ones that are kind of flying around that you're, you know, maybe would be right in your face, those are all male bees. They're kind of like defending that area looking for a bee. And so they're not actually even going to sting you. And the carpenter bee is one of our largest bees. Again, I mentioned that number 3,600 bees in America, and they really do range in size. Some of them are so tiny, like you wouldn't even see them if, unless you, you know, looked for them. And so some of them are too small to even sting you, like to penetrate your skin. So long story short, I think people need to understand like what bees are looking for. They're looking for pollen and they're looking for nectar. As a human, like ask yourself, do I possess either of those qualities in me? Are you pollen or are you nectar? No, you're not. So bees aren't actively seeking you out. If you step on a bee, it, yeah, it probably would sting you. And you think about if like, if you were a bee and something stepped on you, you might like try to elicit a, a defense. So, you know, if you're walking around during the summer and you have lots of clover in your yard, be careful where you step if you have no shoes on or wear shoes, you know, that's kind of using some common sense there. But no, I don't think people need to be super worried about walking by flowers and being stung. Again, I think that education piece is key, understanding what bees are looking for. And, you know, if somebody is allergic to bees, sure, they need to exercise some, some extra caution. Absolutely. But I think the, the everyday average person doesn't need to be scared of bees and getting stung. You know, just this summer, I noticed that there were a lot of bees falling in my pool. And they were little like mason bees, very, very small. And I would just scoop them out of the pool into my hand, let them dry off in my hand, and they would fly off. You know, they're not as scary as people lead on to believe sometimes. And you talked a little bit about the difference between wasps and bees. I know we're all, all afraid yeah. of the yellow jackets. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think a lot of times bees can get a bad rap because of yellow jackets, right? Yellow jackets are yellow and black. And so are honeybees yellow and black. Bumblebees are yellow and black. And so if you're just kind of going based on similar characteristics, you could easily confuse the two or think they're the same thing. And yellow jackets, sure, they can be aggressive. Absolutely. But even they play an important role in our ecosystem. And I do think wasps get a bad rap due to a reputation for being aggressive. But even wasps, they're quite a few species of wasps that are solitary nesting and, you know, similar to the bees, they're not actively trying to like hunt you down and sting you. Um, but in reality, wasps are really adept hunters that we wouldn't want to live without. 
the main physical differences are they're more smooth bodied, right? They kind of have like a really cinched waist and they don't actively collect pollen. So like they don't have those hairs and those pollen trapping hairs that are found on most bees. So they are pollinators, they're minor pollinators, but really what they're out there, you know, looking for in the flowers, they're going to collect some nectar. But as I mentioned, they're hunters. And so they do us a great service in keeping insect populations in balance and uh, managing pests. And so they are really beneficial insects and they can be part of biological control, both in agricultural settings and even just in your garden. And so basically bees are simply wasps that have adopted a vegetarian diet or wasps are their meat eaters. So they're out there collecting insects and that's what they feed to their young instead of pollen like bees do. So like they're, you know, they're similar. They, they evolved from a common ancestor, but that's kind of the best way of looking at them. But they're really valuable hunters and they, they really help out with that insect control. You mentioned not using the mosquito spray. And so what else can we do around our homes that could help the bees? Yeah, so honestly, the the best thing that people can do is plant native plants, right? So one of the earlier questions that you had asked, I, I noted that habitat loss and habitat degradation. So, you know, not only losing actual habitat, but the habitat that that pollinators have is really low quality due to invasive species, you know, a lot of times through herbicide spraying. So, you know, it only allows for, you know, certain plants to be available. So really the, the quality of resources and the amount of resources that pollinators are left with is very small. So what people can do is plant native plants. And the reason why native plants are so important is because these are the plants that our native pollinators have evolved with. They've evolved relationships. And some of them, I mentioned a couple, they rely solely on certain types of plants for their ongoing reproduction. You know, I mentioned that spring beauty minor bee. I mentioned the checker spot butterfly. The monarch is another notable species that, you know, has a really distinct relationship with a, a certain plant. And so planting native plants, reducing the amount of lawn that you have, you know, maybe letting your lawn go a little, you know, maybe you're not mowing it every week, maybe you're mowing it every two weeks to allow some of those flowers like violets that come up, you know, in your lawn to, to thrive. And those are some things that people can do, but really it's planting native plants. Our pollinators need more habitat and they need more quality habitat. The college has a pollinator trail that the uh, county helped us by providing the plants and the master gardeners and other folks around the county have helped us create it. And next week at our sustainability day, the students and staff and the master gardeners are gonna be doing some maintenance, you know, putting the flowers to bed for the winter. But as we look towards the following year, what else can the college do to expand our pollinator trail and encourage the bees here on campus? Bob, I think that you're already doing all the right things. And so honestly, it's just continuing to do more of the same. You know, some of the amazing things that you're doing are not only are you planting the plants and you have them there, but you're actively engaging your community, your students, and educating them about that, right? The more that we can educate people about this topic, chances are they're going to tell somebody else about it and tell somebody else about it. So the more that we educate people about the importance and then you having that, that kind of demonstration area there, it shows like, hey, 
this is something that you can do. Here's what it would look like. The other things that you're doing, you're supporting other events and activities at the college that promote this type of thing, right? The Green Fest this year, you supported our Trees for Bees giveaway, right? So we were able to give away a thousand pollinator focused tree species to Howard County residents. You know, we wouldn't have been able to do that without you. And so I think a lot of what you're doing is what needs to be done. And it's kind of just more of the same thinking about, hey, are there any other areas on the campus that we could be planting native plants or planting, you know, pollinator focused trees, things like that. So I think you're already doing a really great job and, you know, you're setting an example for other areas, other, even other colleges to what they can do. So I would say just keep it up. Well, with that encouragement, I'm sure we will. We'll keep expanding things, <laughs> looking into new areas. Well, we've reached the end of another wonderful show. Thanks, Julie, for joining me and for all of the work you're doing to take care of our bees and pollinators. I'll be back next month with another guest and sustainable topic. In the meantime, if you have ideas or comments, you can connect with me at rmarietta at howardcc.edu. You can listen to this and all of our other episodes at dragondigitalradio.podbeam.com. And you can also catch us on HCC TV and Howard Community College's YouTube page. Don't forget to share, like, comment, and let others know how to join us and help us take care of our world because every small step we take has a great impact. Thanks again. Thanks, Bob. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.